Support for Paradox comes from the Timothy Center, your online counseling center no matter where you live. The Timothy Center is a marriage and family counseling facility in Austin, Texas, offering distance consultations for those that live outside the Austin area. If you have questions and you'd like to consult with Jimmy, Josh, or one of their licensed professionals, visit them at timothycenter.com. Recording live from Austin, Texas, a conversation about marriage and family that women will love and guys won't want to turn off. Dr. Jimmy Myers and Dr. Josh Myers are a paradox. Guys, welcome to the show. This is Paradox and I am Josh, and we are so excited to have Dr. Kelly Flanagan on the show. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Josh, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Kelly is a psychologist that really focuses in on shame, uh, intimate relationships, as well as purpose. Uh, he is a father, his 13, 9, and 7-year-old children, so he is certainly in the thick of things parentally. He's also a blogger and an author, and his latest book is entitled Lovable. Tell us about Lovable. <laughs> well, Lovable... Um... <laughs> Lovable. That's that's a Rorschach. You know this as a, yeah, as a exactly. doctor. This is a, just give me a Rorschach, right? Um, well, uh, so Lovable um, is a book that arose out of um, some of my sort of early success as a blogger, um, and uh, and a lot of the the early early content that I wrote on my blog. And I'd say early to mid range in terms of my blog. I started essentially to write letters to my kids. Um, this happened at, at one point, my wife and I had trouble with a coffee maker one day, and uh, I was Googling on uh, uh, the internet. I was trying to figure out how to, uh, how to get the, to keep the coffee hot in the new coffee maker that we had purchased. And, um, and when uh, I, I accidentally typed the wrong information into Google, it auto-completed something. And uh, I found a search that said, how to keep him interested. And I, uh, I looked up, the, you know, I clicked on it and I started to look into these articles and this wealth of information on the Internet. There's all this information about how young women or women in general should essentially like sort of stroke the ego of a man and make him feel mm -hmm. superior and just make all the right moves to keep him interested. And it, as a, at the time, I had a daughter who was three and it sort of bothered me. <laughs> and uh, I wrote a letter to her sort of spontaneously. I'd been blogging for about a year at that point and had never, never really published anything that personal on my blog. And I, I spontaneously wrote a letter to her about that, about how interesting she is and in her inherent worth. Um, and I read it to my wife and she said, you know, this is, this matters. It's important. You should put it on your blog. And I did that. Um, about a year later, I, I wrote another letter to my daughter about her inner beauty um, and put that on my blog. And that actually led to us ending up on the Today Show. Um, uh, and so after that happened, my, uh, I was fortunate to get connected with a really uh, great literary agent, as sometimes happens when you show up on national television. And you know, <laughs> she said, hey, you, you know, you're writing all these good parenting letters to your kids. You should write a parenting book. And when I told my wife that, she's like, no, you've got no business writing a parenting book, dude. <laughs> Um, yeah. she's actually, wife. Yeah. yeah, my wife is the child psychologist, but, uh, so out of that though, came this discussion and what we realized is that people were responding to the, to my letters, not necessarily as parents who wanted to give the letters to their children, but as adults who were saying, basically, I still go, I've got a little kid in me who needed to hear these things still. Exactly. Um, and so what we decided to, what I decided to do is to continue in that vein and, and write a book um, that was at one level sort of an extended love letter to my kids, but also a love letter to 
you know, the little kid in me and then hopefully the little kid in every reader. So that's what we did. Yeah, you're very clear in saying it's a love letter and not an instruction manual. Kind of tell me why that distinction is important. Yeah, you know, I think the temptation when you start talking about books that are like how-to books and, you know, six steps to and instruction manual kinds of books, the temptation is, okay, this book is going to solve my problems um, and it's going to help me perfect my life. And one of the things, the, what I'm, I'm trying to do in the book is sort of undo that perspective a little bit and say, it's our shame, it's our belief that we're not good enough the way that we are that promotes so much of this search for perfection or to, to you know, receive just the right kind of self-help that will fix everything. Um, and so I, don't, I didn't want to do that with this book. I wanted to say, hey, part of life is embracing that it's messy, it's broken, um, and messiness and brokenness doesn't necessarily mean you're not good enough the way that you are. And you talk about within the book a lot about, you know, worthiness, belonging, purpose, and you write about it in that order. Why is that progression so important? Uh, it's funny. So uh, we decided to write this book in, in as a, essentially like this love letter to the little kid in every reader. Um, and I had never written a book before, uh, so I started to send proposals to Kathy, my agent, and she's really seasoned and experienced, and she kept, she just kept batting them down, rejecting them one after the other. And, um, eventually, one day, we were on a phone call, and she said, uh, so you keep sending me these three, co- you know, core pieces of the book, uh, worthiness, purpose, and then belonging, uh, and why, why is that? And I stopped her, and I said, oh, no, it's not worthiness, purpose, and belonging. It's worthiness and then belonging and then purpose. She said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, that's, that's the order in which emotional and spiritual health and healing develop. Um, they, it can only proceed in that order. And she said, well, Kelly, that's, that's a book. That's something that uh, rings true, and it's something I've never heard, and it's something that people need to hear. Uh, so we continued in that vein. And the idea essentially is that, you know, as a therapist, uh, most people come to me they don't come to me saying, I don't feel worthy, I feel ashamed, and I want to I fix that. They come to me saying, essentially, my relationships aren't working, or I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know the direction to head. Um, and for years, I spent a lot of time diving in on those two topics, but we would get stuck. Um, and over time, began to discover that's because our relationships or our belonging and our direction or our purpose really need to flow from a sense of worthiness rather than being an attempt to prove that we're worthy or get a sense of worthiness from our relationships. So that foundational piece first has to be there. Um, And then uh, relationships become about revealing our true self that we've discovered to be worthy. And, uh, and our purpose flows naturally from the passions that we, that we reconnect with when we reconnect with our true self. So that progression is central to, to what I talk about in Lovable. And that first step, that sense of worthiness is so difficult. I, I deal with my own clients regarding uh, the idea of positional worth and value, that you have worth and value simply because you exist and you are a father or a son or a, you know, a spouse this idea of positional worth and value is so incredibly difficult to grasp. Um, why do you think that is? Well, when it, you know, the, the sort of developmental um, trajectory that I explore in the book uh, and that I've come to discover in my practice uh, seems to be true of everyone is that, you know, we come into the, the world and uh, we, you know, kids initially, they're, 
their sense of worthiness to them is self-evident. You know, they, they aren't walking around going, <laughs> boy, am I good, good, good enough here, you know? And that's why they do such amazing, beautiful, fun, and quirky things, you know? They don't, uh, you don't care until about third or fourth grade, at least, uh, what you wear at school, you know? And, uh, um, and, and so it, it's actually at some point early in our lives, um, at a point where we still consider ourselves to be worthy and it's, it's unquestionable, we encounter something that, that we therapists call shame. And shame is the message that we get in a bunch of different ways that we're not good enough the way that we are and the way that we were born. Um, and as soon as we begin to uh, consistently encounter that shame, uh, what we do is we start to have to hide our, our true self away. We begin to distrust our sense of worthiness. And our lives really become this project of trying to develop a different self, like a false self that we think will be more presentable to the world. And, uh, and so really, um, it's, you know, there's a, there's a sense that our worthiness was forgotten a long time ago. We were sort of talked out of it and rediscovering it then is, is sort of a, a 180, a turning of directions in our life from thinking we have to prove it to actually remem- remembering it and rediscovering it and getting reconnected with it. Yeah, this, this idea of shame can be so toxic. You know, it's, it's, it's the idea that I am something bad. In some ways, or in a lot of ways, there's there's a difference between guilt and shame. Kind of distinguish between the two, and what's your belief on on guilt? Is it toxic? Yeah, no. So I think you're halfway there already in what you said. It's a great way to distinguish. So, um, and it's important because people will have a reaction when we start talking about shame, saying, "Well, but shame is good because when I when I do something bad, I need to feel bad about it and go correct it." That's where I say, well, that's you're actually talking about guilt, and this distinction is just starting to evolve. Um, so it's it's sort of a new distinction. But this idea that that shame is the idea that I am bad, and guilt is the idea that I did something bad or wrong. And we we get this, and you know, intuitively when we talk about parenting with our kids, you know, we don't we we know not to say to them, oh, you are a bad boy. We we know intuitively to say, well, you made a bad decision or you did something wrong. Um, and guilt. When it's disconnected from a sense of shame, when I can say, I'm good enough, I'm okay, I'm worthy, um, but I did do something that I regret, I do something that I feel guilty for, then guilt motivates action. We don't have to hide it. We can say, hey, um, my worth is not in doubt, and so I can just go out and correct this thing. So guilt is actually drives um, healthy behavior, whereas shame, when we have a sense that we are something bad, um, we want to hide that away. That's our first instinct. So shame actually promotes more shame, whereas guilt promotes healthier behaviors. How does one, so shame being such a huge, important topic, how does one begin the process of getting over there or working through their shame? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, uh, well, so let, let's go back to one of your earlier, you know, reflections that it's, you got to be careful to not get into a instruction manual discussion about that because it is so, um, it's complicated, and in some ways, I hate to use the word as a professional, but it's somewhat mysterious, um, you know, how any person begins to move beyond that. Um, but I try to simplify it for people. Um, and the way that I personally try to simplify it uh, and the way that I found most effective is to say, over time, all of those messages that we receive, those shame messages that we're not good enough, um, they sort of get taken in and integrated and evolve into a voice inside of us. And I call that the voice of shame. And most people, when you start talking about it as a voice um, and talking about healing as a process of listening for that voice, begin to relate to that because we all have this sort of mental tape that is constantly playing. Um, 
And so that's the first piece of it is just beginning to label it um, and be able to observe and listen to that voice. Because as soon as you begin to listen to it, you get a little bit of distance from it. Suddenly it's not you, it's you mm-hmm. listening to the voice of shame within you. And that can make a tremendous different for fo- difference for folks um, to just be able to say, oh, I'm listening to it now. And now I get to decide, do I continue to listen to it, right? Or I get to decide, do I believe it? Um, or is it lying to me right now? Um, so that is, that's a, a core piece of it. And why is belonging? So if the next step in the progression is belonging, why is that so incredibly important? You know, it's, it's important. And, you know, this is one of those things, too, that um, most, most folks, when they kind of search for themselves, will say, yeah, it's pretty self-evident. We're sort of wired for belonging. You know, that desire to be in relationship, to have a place in the world where we feel like we are known or seen and we're accepted for who we are. Um, very few people on, on the planet will tell you that life is satisfying without that. Um, and so it's, it's really essential to being human. Um, but what we, we tend to do if we have not first embraced our worthiness is that we think we have to manufacture a presentable self that will sort of win people over and convince them that we're worth keeping around. Um, but if we can do this work of remembering and embracing our worthiness, then it gets real simple. And it's just about revealing our true self in the world to people and sort of noticing who goes, Ooh, I just saw you. And I really liked what I saw. And I want to be, I want to be around you more. And I want to spend more time with you. And when you can get two people who both feel that way about each other, you have a place of belonging that is forming. Um, and uh, it's not, it's not about finding people who totally agree with you or people who share your exact, you know, political or religious beliefs or so on. It's, it's someone who says, well, I might disagree with you on that, but I see your heart and I love it. And it's, it's great. And I want to be around you more. Tie in the Christian faith. How, we're talking shaming and, and belonging. How does that apply to this whole conversation? The Christian faith? Yeah. Well, I'd go back one, one question, and, and I would say that um, what the Christian faith helps us do and understand is that once we've begun to listen to that voice of shame and make a decision about it, and we might say, you know what? We might say back to the voice of shame within us, you know, your, your reign is ending in me. I, I am not going to believe you anymore. Um, you may talk, and there will be days where uh, you're louder than others, but I, I'm choosing not to believe you. Well, then the question is, what's next? Um, and one of the central themes of lovable is that we also have another voice within us, and this is the voice that I call grace. Um, and, uh, of course, many people will be able to understand it as the voice of God. Uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, great Catholic uh, writer and, and spiritual uh, uh, mentor uh, called it the voice, the inner voice of love. Um, but the idea is that we have within us a loving presence that is constantly, that is really the only presence able to truly see us uh, because it is on the inside of all of our pretending and hiding and so on. And it's always reminding us that we are lovable and that we are worthy and that we are beautiful in very unique and special ways. Uh, and so really, um, the, the life of faith becomes about shifting our attention away from the voice of shame and, and more and more consistently and continuously listening to the voice of grace within us. That's powerful. And how can spouses help in that? You know, obviously, if we could just all snap our fingers and start listening to God regarding our worth and value, everything would be solved. Um, but how can actually relationships here on earth 
particularly spouses, uh, assist in that process? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, ideally, you know, obviously, the the ideal would be that we. Um, one of the hallmarks of the voice of grace is that once we begin to listen to it within ourselves, uh, we sort of overflow with a desire to be that voice to other people as well. Uh, and so ideally in our relationships, it's sort of a mutual um, speaking into the life of the other. And, and uh, when, for instance, when I'm not able to hear the voice of grace within me and my shame is a little too loud to hear that, um, that my wife can sort of come alongside me and fill in, you know, uh, for the voice of grace and, and let me know what I need to hear. Um, but really, the, the, the core of that is that um, you have to be able to hear the voice of grace within you first in order to be that to the people that you love. And, and so, um, again, the reason for the, putting this worthiness piece of our journey first is that until you've been able to hear and start to tune into the voice of grace within you, It'll be really hard to do it for the people that you love, even your spouse. What happens is if you haven't, if you haven't done that first, you spend your, your life saying, you need to be that for me. You need to be the voice of grace in my life. You're disappointing me. You're not good enough. I don't feel lovable. And the job is yours to make me feel that. And, uh, and so the relationship becomes this place of mutual disappointment in the other. Um, and, and so this other piece has to come first where we no longer need it from our spouse all the time because we can hear that voice of grace within ourselves and we can become that voice of grace for them. Woo. <laughs> These are such nuanced conversations. I mean, you need, you need to listen to this episode 10 different times to dig into all these things that you're saying. That's, that's fantastic. I have been told that people, uh, when they finish lovable, go back to the beginning and start it over. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, so, all right. So we, we hear the voice within ourselves, um, and or, you know, we begin to accept that idea that God has already said about us, that we do have worth and value, so we hear it, then we'd be able to speak it to our spouses. What about maybe the opposite, whether it is spouse or somebody else, like toxic relationships, those that don't speak into uh, our worth and value, how do we handle toxic relationships? That's a great question, and it, honestly, I think it's the toughest question that the book uh, begins to address, and I think it's the only point in the book where I say, listen, um, if, if this is a question you're wrestling with, you need to seek wise counsel, uh, maybe even professional counsel, because deciding what to do with relationships, deciding whether or not they're toxic, and then deciding what to do then, it's, it's a painful decision usually, and it's a momentous decision. So, um, But one of the things that I often remind people is that until you have begun to present your true self in relationship, you can't decide whether or not a relationship is toxic. Um, because a toxic relationship is defined as one in which you present your true self as best you can to somebody else, the worthiest self, and they continue to shame you for being you. Um, and, and so until we've done that work of reconnecting with our true self and beginning to show it, um, the person that we're in relationship with, they may be responding to our false self, um, which oftentimes can be very toxic in and of itself. Uh, and so Doing that work of connecting with our true self, taking the risk to present it in relationship. And then at that point, if someone that we love and care for, maybe for a long time, uh, continues to shame us and belittle us and to not give us the opportunity um, and the appreciation of who we are, then we have to start to consider maybe this is a toxic relationship and I've got some hard work to do to figure out what I want to do with that. Uh, usually it involves you know, better boundaries in the relationship, maybe some distance, maybe a lot of distance, 
But again, those are all, it's tough discernment. These are all things we have to do with somebody that we really trust their counsel. Yeah, and make that decision within the, the context of community. Guys, uh, fantastic stuff. If you want more information about Lovable, as well as Kelly, and also to check out the blog that includes the letters to his children, check him out at drkellyflanagan.com, and it's DR's the doctor, drkellyflanagan.com. You can also follow him on Twitter and Facebook, and it's the same handle, Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us. Gosh, thank you. This was a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. I have a confession to make. Most of the time, I poke fun at Jimmy. I call him an idiot. Um, I belittle his perspective and think he's way too offensive. But the whole interview, I kept thinking, we need Jimmy. It's like Kelly was unbelievable. He was spouting out truth and I was I was as a therapist digging in and just man I wanted all of those words was just gold but I kept thinking we need Jimmy like I as an interviewer am so boring (laughs) that's terrible I was like man I'm not doing Kelly justice I am I just kept going question to question being very boring and Kelly was fantastic uh so we need Jimmy he had another, this is like our third interview this spring that he was not able to make. He had another client that he couldn't move. It's probably his time management and his calendaring that's lacking and why he wasn't here, but he was unable to, to be with us. So I apologize. But Kelly was fantastic. The idea of positional worth. We need to aim for our children to walk out of our house when they're 18, not 25, 18, And they need to believe wholeheartedly that whether they're president of the United States or a convicted felon, that we as their parents love them, cherish them, and value them with the utmost love. Now, we might be disappointed in their decisions, but we'd visit them in prison. And that's the idea of positional worth. They didn't earn it. They have it simply because they exist And this whole idea of figuring out that we're lovable begins with that worthiness. And then it progresses towards relational connection, that sense of belonging. The fantastic news for all of us is that as believers, we like, we have it. So even if we're like single adults and we don't have the belonging of a spouse and maybe we desire, we have it. We have it. All we have to do is really reach out with open arms and grasp it and accept that idea of worthiness and belonging that we can have within the Christian community is just mind-numbingly huge. And so it's this this idea of lovable is so incredibly important, and a few key things that, that I picked out from him. He said that we have to hear the voice of grace, so we, we need to stop listening to the voice of shame and start listening to the voice of grace. And we have to hear that within ourselves first to be able to speak that voice of grace to our spouses, as well as to our kids. Absolutely huge. He also talked about this idea of of toxic relationships, and if we don't first hear the voice within ourselves and accept that, then we actually start to expect it, and we become very needy within relationship, expect it from our significant relationships, best friends, spouses. And that's when the relationship can really be codependent, and, and we can have an unhealthy need and dependence on the other person. 
So we have to have that security within ourselves and our relationship with God before we can ever have really healthy relationships. I think it's Les Parrott. We interviewed him last year. Um, you know, relationships can be only be as healthy as the two individuals within it. And so if we ourselves are too dependent, or if we have spouses that fall into that category, then the health, the relationship can't be too terribly healthy. And then finally, he talked through how we're born with a pretty secure sense of self, and it's you know not until kind of late childhood before adolescence that we really look around and stop to start to observe kind of the messiness and the brokenness of the world as well as ourselves, and that's when that shame starts to develop. But we have to be be willing to grasp the idea that even in the messiness, even in the brokenness, and especially in the shame, that we still have this inner beauty. And that's, I think in a word, this inner beauty, this lovable is, is kind of what this book is all about. So guys, feel free to go check him out. Definitely do drkellyflanagan.com. If you want more information about this show, you can visit us at paradoxpodcast.com and click on the episode tab. We have all the links to everything that we talked through and talked about there on our website. You can also sign up for our email listserv at paradoxpodcast.com. You'll get roughly one email a week um, about happenings with the Paradox. You can also follow the show or us individually on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find that information at paradoxpodcast.com. Guys, we appreciate it. Take care. Paradox is produced by Billy Lee Myers Jr. and researched by Dr. Jimmy and Dr. Josh Myers. For more information about our Paradox evangelist, Julie Lyles Carr, go to julielylescarr.com. If you want more details about what was discussed on today's show, go to paradoxpodcast.com. Next time on Paradox. We think the most powerful uh, sex organs are the eyeballs. And, you know, it really all begins right there. And if you don't have that eyeball-to-eyeball connection, then you're probably uh, not going to do well in connecting 